<laughs> well, hello, welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Got my Western look on tonight. Got my boots. I just need a big yo mama buckle. See, I don't have that. So this is the Puerto Rican version of a cowboy. All right, we are in uh, Ezra, and uh, we're getting to the uh, end of our study of the Old Testament. We didn't hit every single part of the Old Testament or every chapter and verse of the Old Testament. Some of it is incredibly complex and difficult to even understand, especially when you get in all the prophets. But we've gone through and hit all the basic stuff to give a clear understanding of where we came from, where our faith comes from, all God's promises, eventually all leading up to the Messiah. Now, what has happened is Israel has been taken into captivity because of their disobedience. Seven years later, God starts sending them back. And that's where we pick up Ezra. Uh, Daniel is already in play, the book of Daniel. Actually, this is so out of order. I don't know who made the decision to stick these books in the order they are, but they're totally whacked. How anybody puts a Nehemiah before Psalms, I have no idea. But actually, David... Uh, or, or Daniel and, and uh, Ezra and uh, Nehemiah and Esther and uh, Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi should all be at the very end. The only thing they got right was Malachi being the very, very end. And uh, so anyway, we're jumping around trying to make it all sense out of it. So a lot of the books that I just mentioned to you were all during this time of God sending them back out of Babylonian captivity, starting to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem all obviously in the timing of God, getting ready for the birth of Jesus to come. All right? So now, uh, we were in chapter 6 of, uh, of uh, Ezra, and uh, we read in chapter 6, verse 1, about King Darius. And then when you get to chapter 7, verse 1, it starts saying, during the reign of King Adder, 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 how do you say his name? Artax. Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, name your kid that. Artaxerxes, get over here. All right, so, so the point here is that there's a big jump, and there, he totally skips over the reign of Xerxes. Artaxerxes, once they say Xerxes, I can get the rest of it. Artaxerxes, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, okay. So, it's, uh, we, to catch one of the major things that happened during the time of Xerxes that he skips over, that's when you jump over to Esther. Because Esther happens during the time of Xerxes. So we read the story of Esther, which is quite stunning and amazing. This incredible deliverance that the Jews celebrate to this very day. All right? So now we come back to chapter 7. So we went from chapter 6 over to Esther. Now we're back to chapter 7. And he starts talking about Adderxerxes. And Adderxerxes gives this letter to Ezra, empowering him you know, with the permission and all the money they need to continue the building of, of Jerusalem. And uh, so we won't read all of that. Uh, chapter 8, um, it starts listing, you know, specific people. They were very detailed in following who was the father of whom and who came next. That's why when you get to Matthew, it talks about Jesus, and it starts with the... Uh, Genealogy and it goes all the way back, boom, all the way because they kept track of all this. It was a really big deal. Uh, I've often wondered. I, I've uh, I never did bother dig into it uh, if they continued after Jesus' time for the Jews to stay that detail. I wonder if anybody continues to keep that kind of record. I don't know. I've never heard. It'd be interesting to ask a rabbi someday if anybody's kept tabs for the last two thousand years. 
uh, if you would think somebody did, because that's what they always did. In any event, um, so that's listing some of the heads of Jerusalem. Uh, talks about you know coming back to Jerusalem and all the stuff that he's doing. Okay, then we get to chapter nine. Now, this is kind of like the major deal of Ezra, other than to show us how we start with Cyrus and then to Darius and of course off to Xerxes, back to Artaxerxes, putting in context of how God had put this in motion for them to come back to rebuild this city, this nation that had been totally destroyed. So anyway, so Ezra comes and uh, he starts to pray in chapter. Now we're getting ready to read in uh, verse 6 here for the people pushing buttons in the back. But uh, so chapter 9, verse 6, he starts to uh, gather everyone together. Well, you know what? I repent. We'll start at verse 1, put it in context here for you. Uh, Start of verse 1, 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their, their I can't read tonight, detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, and all the otherites are out there, all right? So they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. They were not to be intermarrying with the nations around them. Uh, They said, you know, to mingle the holy race. It sounds extremely racist here. But at this point... They were extremely racist, and, uh, uh, you know, they really considered themselves the holy race, and really all peoples were kind of into this, you know. We certainly fight that kind of thinking today, but that's the way they thought. They were talking thousands of years ago, and felt that they had made a big mistake by incorporating and marrying into some of these, taking wives from these other races and, you know, diluting the pool, if you will. Uh, Personally, I don't think so much it was about race as it was as avoiding the uh, practices of those people. Uh, In other words, God said, don't have anything to do with them because chances are the girl comes in, you marry the girl, and she's used to, uh, um, you know, worshiping the God of whatever, Baal. And, uh, And then the chances of her teaching her children about Baal were very high. Well, this is the state. Let's say it. if you come to Jesus and uh, maybe you're already married, something you come to Jesus, your husband doesn't want to become a Christian, but you're a Christian, and you're going to try and tell your kids about Jesus, right? Well, they felt the same way about all their stuff. So the big warning was don't intermarry because you'll be pulled into the practices of these false religions. That was the main reason. I don't think I could be wrong. I've been wrong before, but I don't think it was so much just about the race uh, in and of itself. Anywhere, anyway, Ezra hears that a lot of this has been going on. And in verse 3, he says, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Rather dramatic. Okay, this is what they did when they freak out. Me, I just yell. I don't have the hair to pull anyway. So this was, this was dramatic. You would see that they'd take their clothes, they'd rip their clothes. Uh, I don't know if you've been watching the AD series, some of you. But you'll see when they were, uh, you know, humbling themselves, they took handfuls of ash and they just dump it on their heads, and it was, just, it was really gross looking. But that's, they just, they were humbling themselves before God and 
course, by that time, it all became about optics rather than a clean heart, which Jesus had to deal with over and over again. But this was their thing. This was the tradition. To this day, all you got to do is watch the news in the Middle East. When something goes bad, people go nuts. They howl. They scream. They cry. But, you know, the kind of stuff that in this country we would put you in the loony bin. <laughs> but over there, that's normal. It's part of their culture. That's just the way they express mourning. So he sits down. He's freaking out. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And, sat, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. So he was appalled all day long. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement and my, with my tunic and cloak torn, and he's the one who tore it, and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you. Because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. And he goes into this huge thing uh, before God saying that we have really sinned against you. And one of our big sins is that we have broken covenant and taking some of us, not all of them, some of them had taken wives, which would have been an easy thing. Again, these cultures, remember when, uh, you know... uh, my head is nothing but mud tonight. <laughs> What's his name? When they first came in with the Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Good night. I can't think tonight. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he sets up this big Persian kingdom, and he's trying to incorporate all these religions. There. So it's, you know, your kids are raised with a cute little Hittite chick down the road, and at some point he says, hey, baby, would you fall in love with me? I love you, baby. So he marries the chick, and so, so this is only natural to happen. So anyway, uh, he freaks out because, what? This has been going on? And he's, and he's freaking out, and he cries out to God, and, uh, and it was dramatic, chapter 10, verse 1, while Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. I mean, he's freaking out, he's crying, he's wailing, he's highly respected. You know, what's his problem? They hear it, he, they start weeping too. Everybody's crying their eyeballs out. And, um, you know, then, <laughs> what are these names? Are? I can't say these two people. One of the descendants of Elam said to Ezra, we've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there's still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. So brother, whatever you say to do, we're going to do. So Ezra rises up and put the leading priests and Levites and all of Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. So basically they took the oath and made him swear that you'll do what I say. <laughs> Who would take such an oath? I have no idea. I want to hear what you have to say <laughs> before I agree to anything, right? But now we agree, we'll do this. So then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehonanan, whatever, son of whatever. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. 
Think you'd show up for that meeting? Yeah, we should do that on Sunday morning. See, people, more people come to church. You don't come to church, we get to confiscate all your property. I'll guarantee everybody to be on time for that gig. So within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. Nobody wanted that penalty. I'm going to lose everything if I don't show up for the meeting. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion. Why? Well, what's going on? What kind of rule is that? Everybody got to show up or you're going to lose everything. What kind of, and not only that, but because of the rain, it says. <laughs> so they're in a bad mood. This sucks. We got to be at this stupid meeting. We're going to lose everything. We're under here pure compulsion, and it's raining. And we got to listen to this. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, you're right. We must do as you say. Why must they do what they say? Because they took the vow. All right. But there are many people here, and it's raining outside. I can't stand out here. Besides, the matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two. This is really a mess. This is what we've sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly and let everyone in our towns who's married a foreign woman come and set a time along with the elders uh, and the judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away. Now, only Jonathan and Jehazekai, supported by Meshulam and whatever, I can't say these goofy names. There's four guys that oppose it. Four men who stand up, they want to go down on record, and it's recorded here to this day. This is insane. This is not right. And uh, so the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were families heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women, and then they actually keep a record of all the guys who did it. And they have all their names here, and ends with verse 44, all these had married foreign, foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives, you think? All right, so now, they do something here that I think is quite shocking, certainly from our worldview. I personally think what they did was wrong, and I'll show you my evidence for this in just a second. You won't read that anyway. I can't find any place where anybody, Bible scholars, thought this was wrong. I think this was terribly wrong. This is the beginning. You have to remember, now the uh, children of Israel are coming back. They've been so unfaithful. Now they swing big time to try and become real sticklers to everything that's been written to the point that they go overboard. By the time Jesus shows up, Jesus can't stand up, most of them. Right? Read the Gospels. You guys make this stupid rule. You made this stupid rule. God never intended this. He goes on and on and on and on, talking about all these goofball rules that these guys had made. And Jesus was constantly in their faces because now they, by the time Jesus shows up, they are so anal. There's only other word to describe it. About all the religious things that should be done and shouldn't be done. If you don't follow this rule, and how many, you can only take so many steps during the Sabbath and you can't heal somebody on the Sabbath because that's against the rule. They had rules about everything. This is the beginning of all that as far as I am concerned. This is when they start getting real anal, and especially about the race thing. That's why they would, by the time Jesus came along, they wouldn't have anything to do with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were still Jews. They were part of the family, but they had intermarried. They considered them half-breeds, so they didn't like them. Remember, Jesus comes to the woman at the well, 
And he starts talking to her. And, and the first thing she says is, well, why are you talking to me? You Jews don't have anything to do with us Samaritans. You despise us. We're a bunch of half-breeds. But Jesus didn't despise her. Again, Jesus comes along and tries to set straight a lot of this insanity that is going on. But they become racist in the purest sense of the term. Uh, to, and it wasn't just white. It was Jewish. If you weren't of that particular, if you didn't have Jewish parents and they kept tabs of who was connected to whom, all this genealogies, then you were a, <laughs> well, the word was called a bastard. <laughs> a pastor's cursing in. Now that's what the Bible calls it in places. That's what you're called. If you don't have the proper husband, father, or whatever, you're considered a bastard. They consider all these people were bastards. So they're all upset that they had married these women and had children by these women. So they decide, we're going to make this right, and we're going to divorce all of these women. Now, I want you to think about what they're doing here. This is thousands of years ago. This is at least 2,500 years ago, right? It's probably 500 years before Jesus shows up. Uh, this isn't 19 or 2015 or 19 anything. Uh, a woman in this time without a husband was toast. They were just absolutely subjected to lives of poverty and ruin. And to take a woman that you had pledged to take care of and love and have children by them and then to dump them under the guise of we're just trying to obey the Lord is the beginning of Phariseeism as far as I'm concerned. And I think it's totally out of whack. My evidence to point out the wackiness of it is uh, in Malachi. Let's jump to the book of Malachi. This is the last book in the Old Testament. No one's quite sure exactly the timing of this, but we know this is right about the time of Ezra and these guys. And this is quite fascinating. Now, when you read the book of Malachi, uh, what happens is the Lord, you know, when Malachi, and we don't really know if his name was Malachi. The word Malachi means messenger. So he says, it starts out, you know, the word of the Lord to Israel through my messenger is really what he's saying. Or the guy's name may have actually been Malachi. Nobody really knows. He might just be an absolutely anonymous prophet. Whatever the, I, that's what they say. I think it's a little odd. I think to have some kind of credibility, people got to know who you are in a culture like that. My guess is his name was Malachi. Anyway, so he comes and he starts prophesying. And basically the Lord is speaking through him, rebuking the people, but not in a harsh way. It wasn't like before, when he was threatened of Satan and the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, which I couldn't think of before, and destroy everything. He's just, he's kind of tweaking them. You know, guys, don't do that. And, and don't be like that. And straighten this out. And, and, uh, and we'll come back, you know, as we start wrapping this up before the summer starts and uh, maybe go through Malachi a little bit more. But I want to just jump to a chapter 2, verse 13. And again, this is right. Now, the question is, did he say this before? We just read this. Uh, my guess is it would have been before as a warning because God sent, frequently sent prophets to straighten them out and warn them ahead of time. Or maybe it was a rebuke after. I don't know. But listen to the words of Malachi. Remember, this is at the same time period of what they just did. And the Lord says this through Malachi. He says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. What did we just read? They're howling, they're wailing. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not 
the one God made you. You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be in your God and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. This is what the prophet, this is what is God saying to them. So he's specifically in this time frame getting on them for this idea of divorce. And what do these guys do in mass? Huge, massive divorce all at one time. Some, and talking about doing uh, violence to the one you should protect. Now, I don't know what happens to these women. I don't know what the record shows. I, you know, all I know is, wow, that's rotten, I think, what they did. And I said, well, now, brother, now, brother. I got to speak less because I'm a Westerner tonight, country and Western singer. Now, brother, they were not the right kind of wives. I understand that, but they married these women. The idea that faith can only come through a race is not true. Otherwise, there would have been no need for converts. And they converted people from all sorts of races. Am I not right? Yeah, they did. And they were to go and, there were, you know, black Jews, green Jews, purple Jews, all kinds. They would come and they would convert. The idea that it was impossible, if anything, they should have just really taken them to task and make sure that these, you know, none of these practices are taken in. And that you are bringing up your wives and your children in the faith. Now you want to take the stand. Now quit doing this. I could certainly understand it. But I think what they do here is quite a travesty. Uh, Who were some of the great men who had foreign wives? Well, Joseph had two wives, right? Was it two Egyptian chicks? All right. And the Jewish nation tribes come through. Was Ephraim and Manasseh come from that deal? from foreign women. Uh, A very famous Jew who brought them the law. Anybody know who he is? Moses. Holy Moses. All right. Moses marries the daughter of a Midian priest. She wasn't racially pure by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, So much so, uh, there was something about her that really did irritate the other Jews. Because at some point, Miriam and Aaron. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I got cobwebs in my brain tonight. Miriam and Aaron, which is brother, uh, Moses' brother and sister, criticized Moses because he married this woman and started going after him. Now, some think, this woman looked very different. Some actually think, think she was a black woman. You know, whatever. All they know is that she's really different. Black would pretty much put it. A bunch of ripe white people. She's different. Why'd you marry that chick? And uh, God got so mad at them, he struck them with leprosy. Instantly. And then they said, oh, we're sorry, we're sorry. And Moses prayed for them and God healed them of the leprosy. And then they shut up. Which I'm pretty sure would stop any of your complaining against other people. And gossiping if you suddenly broke out in leprosy as a result. So <laughs> a little harsh, but highly effective because they didn't criticize them anymore. Uh, who else? I don't know. You know, we're, we're talking some major players in the lineage of the Jewish people uh, that were not Jewish. Well, 
Ruth, right? Ruth and Boaz. Oh, I just love that romantic story about Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was a pagan woman as well. And she marries into uh, the family and becomes part of the lineage of Jesus himself. I mean, I would have been with these four guys who went down on record and said, this isn't right. And I would have said, hey, they didn't listen to him. I said, look, and then I would have quoted some of these things. Look at historically. You can't do that. Uh, who was before Ruth? That was the uh, other one, part of the genealogy. Uh, who? Rahab. Rahab. Thank you. She was a hoe. She was a hoe. Ho, ho, ho. And, uh, and she became a convert to Judaism, and she becomes also. In fact, she was the mother of Boaz, who marries Ruth. You remember Ruth when she's talking to uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi? Oh, the night, words tonight. So Naomi, and that's where she said, people often read this at weddings. Wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. A lot of people like to read this at the wedding. Oh, warm and fuzzy. What she's really doing is this is this pagan woman saying, I convert. All right? I totally convert. You know, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Again, so we got two back-to-back in the lineage of the Messiah who were women who were not of a pure Jewish race. Therefore, I lay my case. <laughs> I think what they did was terrible. Terribly wrong. Trying to unscramble those eggs. And I think it was just the beginning of Phariseeism. Now, in fairness to them, at least they were going away from what they were, which was totally rejecting and ignoring everything that God had told them. That clock is distracting me. I assume I don't have an hour and six minutes to speak yet. What time is it? 7.30. Okay, I got like 15 minutes. All right. I usually pace myself, but that's like totally psyched out. You guys are going to be stuck here a long time <laughs> as I go through all this. You really want to hear me tonight. So I, I think uh, there's, uh, it is true that they weren't supposed to do this, but when you do it, then I think you make the best of the situation. Uh, a lot of people have, you know, and even Christians to this day will struggle with where they're at in life. Pastor, I made some really bad decisions. Sometimes even as Christians, they make bad decisions. Particularly if you're a non-Christian, you make all kinds of crazy decisions and do things you shouldn't have done. And a lot of people get haunted by that stuff. But that's where the Bible says, look, when someone comes to Christ, he is a new creation. All things pass away, and behold, all things become new. Uh, actually, even specifically of, of this issue, this, one of my beefs that I have with a lot of people today is uh, when they come to this idea of, of marriage in a single Christian people who are convinced that God has one special person just for them, which I think is patently absurd. It is absurd. You young people don't think in that thing way. You know, people think that marriage is, some, is a result of some divine revelation, waiting for God to tell you who to marry. As a result, they don't use their brains, wind up marrying a psycho, and then divorcing the psycho that apparently God had told them to marry in the first place. People. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just pagan thinking, because what we have today is the concept of a soulmate, one special person. And you see all these chick flicks, you know. I like chick flicks. You know, I do. I, do. I confess my sin. Okay, 
I enjoy them, but I know they're movies. It's like I look at Star Wars and I really don't think there's a Darth Vader. Okay? I can separate entertainment from stupid. Most of the chick flick stuff is stupid. Do you know how many chick flicks there are where the girl is standing at the altar ready to marry the wrong idiot, right? When the right idiot comes running through the back door going, no, I'm the one. She goes, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, and she runs off with the right idiot. And the music swells. Oh, I think she's a hoe. Okay? I mean, what a terrible thing to do. You've got this family. You've pledged yourself to this other guy. And then at the last second, you go running. And I promise, you know how many young people today are scared to death to get married? Because they're afraid. What if it's not the one? How do I know it's the one? Met some couple in Milwaukee after speaking one night. And they're standing there holding hands and they're talking to me. I said, so how long have you guys been married? Oh, we're not married. No, we're just dating. So how long have you been dating? Eight years. Eight years? What in God's name are you waiting for? Few things get me angrier than that, I gotta tell you. And they looked at me and said, they looked at each other, looked back at me and said, well, how do you know if it's the one? I said, I don't know, do you love her? And he looks at her and goes, yes. And I look at her and said, do you love him? She looks at him and goes, Yes. I said, you're idiots. For heaven's sakes. What is this nonsense about the one? And it's so absurd. Listen, let's pretend for our delusional entertainment that there really is one special person just for you. That God created one special person. And by the way, uh, if you talk about this whole idea of intermarrying that they were complaining about, but it was really about not bringing in crazy thinking. The church has struggled with that for 2,000 years. We have one of the things that the church has struggled and they even warned about in the New Testament is that people would come in to faith but drag their crazy ideas in with them and start polluting the faith. And they'd have to talk about it. They weren't divorcing people as a result, but they were trying to straighten out their thinking. The churches always struggle with this. So that's what happens today. You know, the world comes up with this, there's this one special person, and then the church comes up with their spiritual version of crazy, which is God has one special person. Just for, I, I've looked at Bible college material where they teach this to the kids. God has ordained one special person for everybody. Now, let's, for your delusional entertainment, pretend that is true. All it would take is for one person to get it wrong. And the whole thing goes to the toilet. Right? I mean, if Bob is supposed to marry Sarah, but instead marries Juliet, what's Sarah supposed to do? Well, now Sarah marries Bill, who was supposed to marry Mary. Well, now what's Mary going to do? And then Mary marries Fred, who's supposed to marry Wilma. That's where you get the Flintstones. The whole thing goes to pieces. It would just take one person to get it wrong. And the whole thing would fall apart. The idea that only one person would get it wrong. I mean, reality check. All right? Marriage is not some divine revelation. It's a choice. The Bible says a man finds a woman, takes a woman, chooses a woman to marry. It's not a result of God telling you 
who to marry. I reject that wholeheartedly. And here's how absurd it is. If that were really true, what are we supposed to do with people who come to Christ after they're already married? Because I'm pretty sure they didn't marry the one God had for them. He probably just married her because she had a cute butt. That's all he cared about. She might have married him because she was drunk, didn't know what she was doing. Who knows? Well, now what do we do? If God truly has one special person forever, then the first thing we should do when someone comes to faith in the church and they're already married, say, you've given your lives to Christ? Yes, we have. Okay, now you, you got to get a divorce. That's what we'd have to do, right? Because clearly they haven't found the one. We would, Christianity, instead of being a blessing in, an earth, in the earth, would be one of the greatest curses in the earth. We would be like these psychos. Well, they went and there's, you know, there's not gazillions of them. They, in fact, they show the number of guys, so it's not like an uncountable number of guys that they made them divorce their wives. But you know, everywhere we go, we would destroy families. We would traumatize children. We would destroy assets. Christianity would be a curse and a scourge. Why don't we do that? Because it's stupid. There is not one special person just for you. All right? You need to choose. You need to use your brain. Make a proper intelligent decision. All right? That's why I always tell you, single don't be having sex with each other because sex will make you stupid. It will. It'll make you dumb as a brick. Not in the way it's supposed to. You know, sex is the Novocaine that makes marriage possible. You know, you need something to numb your brain in that deal. But you do it ahead of time, it's just going to make you stupid. And you're not going to think clearly, you're going to make bad decisions. And that, if that's not what's happening in this culture today, then I am a monkey. I don't think I'm a monkey. It's a disaster. So anyway, all this idea of bringing in pagan thoughts and stupid ideas and all this nonsense. And don't be talking to your kids about this kind of stuff. Tell them to be smart. Think it through. It's your decision. Choose wisely. Right? I always think of that movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, when it wasn't the first, but whatever it was, where they had to choose the right chalice. Choose wisely. <laughs> choose the wrong one, you're going to die. <laughs> whatever it was the deal with. <laughs> he chooses the right chalice. Of course, it's the movies. Choose your chalice properly. Anyway, so that's what all of that was about. And that's really Ezra. And that was this thing. Uh, I don't know. Joe, you know, I didn't talk to you about this, but is there much, does anyone in all these studies condemn this? Commentaries and stuff, yeah. I've never seen it. I've never seen anybody condemn this. I think this is horrible. It's interesting because if Malachi happened at the same time, which it did, he's condemning it. You shouldn't be doing this. And there's no sense in doing it because there are all kinds of women in the genealogy of the Messiah himself that had married foreign women. Were they supposed, they weren't supposed to. They were supposed to keep themselves as pure, mainly so they didn't take the practice. But to do this, I think, was terrible. And how many women and children they left high and dry. I hope they had enough sense to have some kind of financial responsibilities for the people. But it wouldn't surprise them if they didn't. You know, just, we'll just we'll pray for you. God bless you. Praise God. Hallelujah. We're behind you. We're so far behind you, you can't see us, but we're behind you. You know, and I'm sure it was a complete and utter disaster. And I think it's terrible. And that's all I got to say about that. Ezra can straighten me out. 
assuming I make it up there. <laughs> All right. Then we get into Nehemiah. Uh, and uh, we'll come back to, uh, oh, you know what? Let's go back. We got a little bit of time here. Let's go back and look at Malachi. We'll just stay here a little bit. And then we'll come back for the final and start going through Nehemiah and wrap that up. And then we'll be done with our study of the Old Testament. Uh, we'll break uh, chapter one. Let's say at verse six. And these are some of the tweaks that he's giving to them. He says, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I were a master, where's the honor, respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food and my altar. Well, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible when you offer blind animals for sacrifice. Isn't that not wrong? Now, let me try and explain to you what's happening here. They were to offer sacrifices uh, to God, animals. But it was supposed to, it really had a big financial element to it. Anybody who's into farming knows a cow is worth a lot of money, much less the best cow you have, the most prized bull that you have. The last thing you're getting rid of is that. Well, in this culture, God said, you need to sacrifice it and give me the best one you got, which would just freak the willies out of these guys. You know, but they were supposed to do it. It's called a sacrifice. Uh, and David, there's a famous saying of King David. Uh, he wanted to offer sacrifices once to God. And this guy who was just a big King David fan said, well, here, I'll, I'll give you all these bulls and, and stuff. And uh, well, David said, how much do I owe you? He said, oh, I'll just give it to you. you know, just, and, and, and David said, absolutely not. I will never offer something to God that doesn't cost me something. Not too many Christians are thinking today. They're happy to offer to God things that don't cost them anything. <laughs> In fact, if they can do a service where there's no offerings, they're the happiest. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> they quit taking offerings at our church. It'll close, but praise God. Uh, so uh, it really cost them. It wasn't just about the sacrificing of the animal in and of itself, although there's certainly foundation there. It was the fact that it cost them. And we're talking, you're doing this in faith. Let's face it, if we were going to, you know you'd think this way. If you're going to, and, and of course, we don't live in agricultural society, not really anymore today. You know, there's still some farmers, but uh, uh, you know, by and large, we don't live in that. If you were going to give a cow to the church for a barbecue, you're not going to give your best cow. I don't care. I, don't, I wouldn't expect you to, but God did back in those days. When you gave a sacrifice, it was the best one. Well, what these guys were doing, they were giving cows and stuff that nobody wanted. In this case, blind ones, lame ones, really sucky animals. And say, that looks like a sacrifice to me. Praise God, send that to the temple. <laughs> and off they go. And God was very offended by this. So what kind of sacrifice is that? You're really messing with some of these people who this is their livelihood to give the very best that they have. But in doing so, God blessed them and prospered them, and their herds got even bigger. See, it's, it's like the whole idea of giving offerings in church. I mean, who wants to give an offering? You want to hang on to what you got, right? You work hard. You do everything. You know, I don't want to give it. You know, I'll give you the money. Well, I won't miss that. But if when you give an offering, you say, well, hey, I'll give you what I won't miss, that's not an offering. There's no sacrifice there. 
When you give an offering, ouch, that's an offering. <laughs> Ooh, could use that money. <laughs> that's a sacrifice, right? Exactly, something that costs you something. Uh, uh, anyway, he, he keeps talking about this. Uh, they talked about the, the, the divorce thing. Um, and speaking of money, uh, this is the famous uh, verse in, uh, in Malachi, uh, chapter 3 now. Verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, but you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? God answers, yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? You notice the way he talks. He says, you're ripping me off. And the first he says, how are we ripping you off? By giving me your blind Creepy animals that nobody wants anyway, all right? And then you talk about being such great, you know, compassionate people. But then you jerks are divorcing your wives. And he gets on them on that. And then he says, you know, you're robbing from me. And they go, well, how are you robbing? It's funny how he just keeps this conversation going back and forth. He says, well, how are you robbing me? And then he confronts them in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole stinking nation. Stinking is my translation. Because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe, the 10%, into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And this is where God says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land says the Lord Almighty. So he says, bring the tithe. They didn't want to tithe. Most people don't want to tithe. <laughs> mine, 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 mine. And he says, you're ripping me off. How are we ripping you off? Because you're not giving this money. And it's hard. And you think, well, I don't want to give because then I'm going to be less off, worse off. And what God says, no, I will bless you so much, you'll be more blessed than everybody else around you. And it's the only place that I'm aware of in the Bible where it says to test me. Is that correct? I'm pretty sure. The only place where God says, test me in this. We are told specifically not to test God. What does that mean? Well, the Bible says that God will protect us. All right, well, let's get on the highway and crank this sucker up. See what she'll do. You're going 110 miles an hour on a curve that says 30. Saying God will protect us. You're going to kill yourself. All right? And when you get to heaven, God's going to chew you out. You're not supposed to be testing God. It's an insult to God to be taking one of his principles and pushing it to the limit and see what he'll do or won't do. That's an insult. Remember when Satan took Jesus up onto the high pinnacle when he's just tempting and says, hey, the Bible says, if you fall, God will pick you up and protect you. Go ahead and jump, see what happens. And that's where Jesus says, thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. You aren't supposed to do stuff like that. Well, let's see if the angels pick me up. Oh, you're gonna wind up like a bug, squished. But in this area, God says, test me. See what happens. Try it. That's all he's saying is try it. I could never die. I could never give that much. I just couldn't do it. Sure you can. Try it. That's what he says. Try and see what happens. If you'll do this in faith, you'll find out that your life is actually more blessed living on 90% of your income than if you kept all 100%. And that's what he promises. So anyway, that's really kind of Malachi uh, is uh, wrapping up this whole thing. Um, but let's get to, uh, 
uh, just wrapping out of time here, chapter four, verse, it's a very short book. Chapter four, verse five. Remember, we're really listening to the last prophet, as far as we know of, in the Old Testament before Jesus comes. And he says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of their children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So when you read in the New Testament, the disciples specifically asked Jesus, okay, you're the Messiah, but what happened to Elijah? Because Elijah is supposed to come. They were literally expecting the original Elijah, who had been caught up into heaven, to come back. Uh, which I got to tell you, that's what I would think. That's what he says, Elijah's coming back. But Jesus said he already came. His name was John the Baptist. So now we know that he was speaking of the spirit of Elijah. Well, you know, so that's, that's where they get that from and that they, they stumbled over Jesus. How can you be the Messiah? And some of these guys were very serious students of the Bible and they couldn't understand how Jesus could be the Messiah but Elijah never came. And what Jesus was saying, it was never intended to be literally Elijah, but the spirit of Elijah that was on John the Baptist. And John the Baptist did exactly that. He turned the hearts of the parents to the children, the hearts of the children to the parents. People throughout Israel were repenting in mass, coming out, seeking out John, listening to his message to turn away from their sins. And he was baptizing them in the River Jordan. And then finally one day, Jesus comes. His cousin, he looks up and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And John basically says, Now you must increase and I must decrease. And that's exactly what happened. John the Baptist became of little import, eventually arrested by Herod and beheaded. Jesus rose to great prominence. All of this to fulfill the words of the prophets, uh, which will pretty much wrap up the Old Testament. Although I do want to go back and hit a little bit of uh, Nehemiah. Uh, in the next week, week after or whatever that we got left, and I'll take a look at that. But that's kind of how it all wraps up. Very interesting, all right? So next week we'll come back, we'll look at Nehemiah and some of the challenges that they face as they continued to rebuild the temple. We'll see you next week.